And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, January 5th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this presidential rank awardee might have one of the toughest HR jobs anywhere. Plus, a look at the IRS, its people, and its modernization in the year ahead. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Los Alamos National Laboratory works on some of the most complex simulations in the world. Scientists there study everything from climate change to nuclear explosions. Los Alamos has long relied on custom-built supercomputers. Well, now it's expanding use of commercial cloud technologies. For details, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the leader of the high-performance computing division at Los Alamos, Gary Greider. Charlie Cloud is our local incantation of how DevOps people essentially containerize applications. So it's really cool technology because you can sort of capture everything that an application needs and containerize it so that you can easily move that application and all its prereqs around and move it and run it anywhere you'd like to run it. And so it's really neat. It has two effects. One is it insulates the user from system changes for long periods of time and enables them to distribute applications easily. And the other is it forces the user to know what's inside of their application. And for us, our applications are several million lines of code written by hundreds of engineers over 20 years, tested and certified and, you know, all kinds of all the things we do. So it's very large apparatus and they pull in a lot of different support libraries, hundreds, even thousands of libraries are linked into these things. And just the going through everything you own and trying to figure out what all it is, what it's what its pedigree is and the like was a valuable exercise for our large applications because they got a real good handle on how to build their things from complete scratch and then how to containerize them in an automated way and then distribute them. So it had several really good effects. One was discipline and the other was the flexibility that it gives you. Charlie Cloud was done because we needed a, a way to build containers and not do it as root. We can't let users be root. And that issue of being root, essentially, it would be giving, you know, you can't allow a user to have that level of privileges or else that would create a major security right. issue. Because they could, they could include Trojan horses and stuff inside of there, right? I mean, it's ugly security stuff, but yes, it was a huge security hole. And for people that use tools today that you have to become root to do, they're, you know, they're running a risk. Of course, they may not care, but we have to. And at the time, which was really not that long ago, two, three years ago, all the container systems, you had to become root to build your container. You didn't have to run it as root, but you had to build it as root because it had root parts in it. We don't allow users to, you know, escalate to root at all anywhere on any, you know, government owned anything. And so Charlie Cloud was the first way, you know, thing to break through that issue. It uses standard container technology. It's just a, you know, sort of a wrapper that allows you to build containers and not be root and then run them not as root. That was a sort of a prereq for us to be able to use containers, which is such cool technology. You really want to use it. And our application people love it. That's what it is. It flourishes today. It's an open source project that a lot of people contribute to, a lot of people use. All right. And so where is Charlie Cloud and any sort of associated container or other cloud-like projects 
going next at Los Alamos? Data containers is going to become a thing so that you can provide a container that has data that's, you know, has understood formats and things like that. So that's sort of happening. That brings up a whole area of R&D we're doing in trying to push data management functions closer to the devices. So like most science sites, we're running very large simulations. Think of a shockwave going through a material. And you don't really care about the stuff before the shockwave gets there. And you don't really care about the stuff that the shockwave already tore up. You just care about the stuff right in front of the shockwave. And maybe just right where the pressure gradient is really high in front of this shockwave. And so then that might represent three orders of magnitude less data than the entire working set of that data. But it's moving really fast and changing and stuff like that. And so we have to record all the data. So we record, we record all petabyte per time step, let's say, but we're really only interested in say 10 terabytes or a terabyte per time step. What we need to do is be able to, you know, when we're doing analysis of the, you know, the output of the simulations, we need to be able to find that shockwave and the stuff around it. And it would be nice if we didn't have to pull a whole petabyte back into DRAM of a supercomputer to, just to find the shockwave. It would be nice if we could push that off to very close to the storage devices that are holding the data. Why? You don't want to move the data. It takes time. You don't want to move the data. It takes energy. You don't want to move the data to something that's huge when you can move the data to something that's smaller by reducing it at the source. And so we're doing a ton of work. You may have seen some press releases we've done on computational storage technologies, working with a bunch of companies. That's the point of that is a lot of science is finding needles in haystacks and things like that. And if you can find ways of pushing that reduction steps, at least as close to the data storage as possible, you get big wins. And we're not trying to do this in a vacuum. The data analytics people, especially the Apache data analytics people, the people that build Spark and Presto and all kinds of analytic technologies have already done some of the, you know, base technologies one would need to go do this and so we're trying to use those but again they weren't designed to be used you know for a hundred thousand or a million cores all riding at the same time and stuff like that right and so we can't take the technology you know and just use it we've got to take the technology and morph it a bit to make it work in our world that's an area in data management that we're moving towards because the data gravity is so huge that we don't even want to move it away from the, the storage devices themselves. You know, you have an exabyte out there. It would take you a month just to move that data. If you could move three orders of magnitude less, we're talking about an hour. It's a lot of difference, right? When you're a scientist and you're looking for an answer, a month is not a great, you know, that's not a great thing to do. You've ruined the scientist's ability to learn when you take these huge amounts of time to get things done. All right. Well, you've covered there and throughout our conversation many areas where Los Alamos is certainly a little bit different than a lot of other agencies in terms of how they're looking at using the cloud. What else do you want people to keep in mind, you know, whether it's industry or, you know, a scientist looking at Los Alamos, thinking about what kind of capabilities it has and where it's going? What do you want them to keep in mind about what your division needs are going forward in the future? Well, I guess I would I would say that the world's pretty crazy about AI and AI is cool and we're finding lots of cool uses for it. And so we're putting in, you know, technologies to do training and all that sort of stuff. And that's really neat. But I would say that 
us perhaps more than maybe any other site we still have highly complex simulations that are so complex we can't contemplate running them yet and i know that sounds kind of crazy because we've been doing simulations since the 40s right but there's there's problems out there that we can't tackle yet and we're working on technologies to be able to tackle them and the technologies are sort of interesting in that they really are memory technologies they're technologies to do exactly the same thing the data gravity is so high and the complexity of the data is so high that you don't really even want to move it from memory to the processor unless you just have to and so we're working in a fair amount of areas in you know driving memory bandwidths and smart memory control mechanisms things like that to be able to build machines in the future that enable us to solve problems that we couldn't contemplate solving today and there's and it's not just one that we're looking at right i mean there's there's a whole series of problems that we just we don't know how to do yet we don't have the capability if we try if we even tried to run it we'd fail miserably or it would take 10 years to run it's not practical yet to run them we need to you know invent the technologies to get there and they're not simple technologies like dense matrix matrix multiplies which is typically what's done in ai training they're complex memory two indirect lookup gathers and things like that that have to be done that are not just los alamos problems but we're sort of at the edge of those and so i would say that that's it that's the interesting thing for me at los alamos is we there's always new stuff like ai and and you know high, high performance data analytics and things like that there's also unsolved problems that are sitting out there that we don't know how to solve yet. Quite a few of them. And we have people that that's what they do is they contemplate, you know, how can the, this technology and that technology in this time frame come together to be able to finally solve this problem we've been waiting for 20 years to solve. And I think there are probably other sites that are like that, but I would say Los Alamos probably has maybe more than our fair share of that. Gary Greider, leader of the High Performance Computing Division at Los Alamos National Laboratory, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a look at the IRS, its people, and its modernization in the year ahead. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The IRS is shaking up its leadership structure for the first time in decades. Changes take effect this month as the IRS prepares to start a new filing season. The reorganization is meant to boost a multi-billion dollar modernization effort. For one thing, the IRS chief information officer will move higher up in the org chart. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. Jory, a lot has changed at the IRS over the past year. What's changed? And give us the uh, review here. Yeah, well, it's been a big year for the IRS, specifically because of the Inflation Reduction Act, the then $80 billion pot of money that is now $60 billion uh, through some wheeling and dealing between the administration and Congress here. But a lot can be done through the decade with that $60 billion. And, you know, one thing that involves no money here is that the IRS is going through a pretty sizable reorganization of its leadership ranks. This is something that they haven't done in decades. And one big thing that they're doing is they're consolidating their second-in-command. They have currently two deputy commissioner roles, and they're going to have one starting in the new year here. And they are now creating four new chief roles to prioritize the kinds of mission areas that are getting 
added attention specifically under the Inflation Reduction Act, and those are jobs in looking at the uh, the IT, it's looking at the taxpayer services, it's looking at the kind of function areas that uh, are really the target for a lot of this money. And for a look at all of this, we heard recently from IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel. He says that this kind of large structural change hasn't happened at the IRS in more than 20 years. We have wave after wave of change coming that will improve and update our agency operations. And we have spent a lot of time thinking about the best way to approach these changes, not just from an operational standpoint, but from a management standpoint. All right. So he's got a full plate here. And meanwhile, there was that deputy commissioner who's out of a job. What's going on there? What's going to happen? Well, this is uh, not news to that deputy commissioner, uh, Jeff Tribbiano, who is currently the IRS deputy commissioner for operations. Uh, He has been contemplating moving on to a different SES role elsewhere in government. He actually told Werfel when he was joining the agency in March of this year, and he was saying, Werfel had told him, stay on a little bit, Jeff. You know, I really need some consistency with the leadership as he's getting onboarded. And so at this late date now, Werfel and Jeff Tribbiano had this conversation where he said, look, we're thinking about this reorganization. I know you've been contemplating work elsewhere. And so this was an amicable arrangement here. This is not Jeff Tribbiano getting shown the door. Yeah, Danny to Jeff, I've got the perfect timing for you to make your exit. Here we go. All right. Well, that's humane, I guess, on everybody's part. And IRS IT, that's been, of course, an eternal for the IRS. What has happened and what can we expect? Yeah, some big things in the works there uh, with the IRS, you know, firing on all cylinders with this uh, spending under the Inflation Reduction Act. IT is going to be a real uh, focus area for them. What we're going to see after next year's filing season, roughly around April, is that they're going to finally, finally have an update to the individual master file. This is something that has been uh, talked about for years and years now, but it's just been pushed back every time. This is now something that they're going to work on. They're going to have a modernized IMF running. They're going to have both the new and old running parallel for a while. But the hope is that in the filing season in 2025, that this is actually going to be the system that will be powering all of this. And Werfel has said in in multiple occasions now that the IRS has really not done a good job of connecting the IT side of things to the customer experience side of things. And they want to make sure that they underscore that connection that, you know, it's not IT for IT's sake. It's to ensure that taxpayers have a better experience when they call the IRS with concerns and questions. And as I was saying earlier about these four new chief positions they're standing up, one of them is going to its chief information officer, Rajiv Upal. He is going to keep his title, but he's going to be elevated in the org chart. He previously was under a larger umbrella of operation support, which included things like HR, its CFO functions. And so what Werfel says is that under this new reorg, there's going to be an added prominence to that CIO role. By splitting information technology out and elevating the chief information officer to be on the same level with the other chiefs, it creates greater connectivity and visibility that the commissioner's office has into our technology, creates more uh, accountability and better ongoing communication around risks and opportunities in the technology space. 
And in the meantime, the IRS didn't have a bad year in 2023, especially when compared to 2022 on that customer service front, Jory. This was the year that was, by all accounts, a real inflection point for them. They answered this year's filing season 87% of incoming calls. That is a drastic improvement from the roughly 15% of calls they were able to handle in the the filing season in last year in 2022. Um, So this is the thing where the IRS has made it really apparent that you get the kind of service that you pay for, that the IRS has been underfunded, and this has been one area where uh, the cuts have been felt most acutely. So that's something that everyone's going to be looking for in the year ahead is just whether they can keep that level of phone support and that service uh, consistent year after year. Now, they haven't modernized that individual master file system yet. That's a couple of years down the line. What can we expect from a technological standpoint, customer service standpoint, you know, operational standpoint for this coming filing season? Well, one new feature here that's worth pointing out is that the IRS is going to pilot its direct file system. This is the kind of thing that a TurboTax runs, but it's now in-house at the IRS. It would be free to anyone who is eligible to use it. This is a project that is specifically funded under the Inflation Reduction Act, and the pilot is going to be limited in scope. It's going to involve uh, hundreds of thousands of taxpayers from 13 states. Uh, They're going to be able to kick the tires on the system, so to speak, um, and ultimately decide whether this is the kind of thing that they want to scale up to full capacity and be a feature that every taxpayer across the country ultimately wants to take advantage of. And what happens to the companies offering this for a fee down the line? They're supposed to go out of business, I guess? Well, they have been critical about these developments as we've learned about them this year. They uh, certainly don't appreciate competing with the IRS for a function and a service that they've been offering for years now under the IRS Free File Program and Alliance. All right. And the workforce for the IRS. This is really what Werfel has been focusing on. What that money is mostly directed to doing is building up the workforce. Give us the review there. Oh, yeah. Well, there's going to be a lot more hiring in the year ahead, specifically focused around the enforcement side of things. Uh, They were looking to fill around 3,700 positions. That was an announcement that we saw in the fall of this year. And what we're going to see and what the commissioner has said in recent engagements is that uh, that that's going to be you know, more hiring to come on the enforcement side of things. The first wave of hiring that the IRS really got to do in 2023 was around taxpayer experience. They hired a couple thousand people to man those phones and make sure that there are people around to answer taxpayer questions. So we'll see whether they can get the enforcement people because that is a specialized field. They, these aren't people that are on the street that have the skill. A lot of training on the job needs to happen. And last week, they announced an enforcement action to get a billion dollars in back taxes back and paid. So they are making some splashes to show, hey, look what this money is producing. Yeah, so they did just do this enforcement action. That's something else we'll be tracking. But ultimately, what Werfel and the IRS are trying to do here is make sure that taxpayers do have a good experience when they reach out to the IRS. This is not something that they want to do. This is something they have to do. And so when they do have to do that, they want to make sure that it's a pleasant experience. And really, when you get down to it, a lot of tax compliance is voluntary. And so they want to make sure that people still keep uh, paying what they owe. Well, I guess paying taxes is never going to be a pleasant experience, but maybe it can go smoothly and according to the rules and fast. So fast means less pain, I guess. 
That's the goal. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And find all of his IRS coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, for these national security agencies, unique approaches to zero-trust cybersecurity. But first, this presidential rank awardee might have one of the toughest HR jobs anywhere. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. How would you like the job of keeping tabs on labor relations in an organization with two million employees or of employee accountability? My next guest isn't personally responsible for these things, but he's the main advisor at the Office of Personnel Management on them, and now he's the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Tim Curry joins me now. Tim, good to have you with us. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And let's begin with what your job actually is, because you are not the labor relations negotiator for any agency, and yet you need to know what's going on across sometimes contentious situations. Yeah, it's always a challenge to explain what my job is to folks. So I am the like the senior career advisor to the director of OPM on labor management relations policy for the executive branch and then employee accountability policy. And what I mean by that is like how we discipline employees or how we address poor performance. And you're right, I am not the manager for that. I'm not responsible for taking those actions out across this big government, this big enterprise of ours. But what I do is I help the director implement the administration's policies regarding labor relations and employee accountability. Plus, I offer technical and policy assistance to agencies that need it, and I support them in any way I can. And it must be something of a challenge to go from administration to administration because it seems like the pendulum swings further and further each time over the past, you know, 8, 10, 12, 20 years. And on the one hand, one administration wants to end official time for all of the, you know, labor work and get rid of the offices. Next thing you know, official time is back. The offices are back. So that sounds challenging. It can be challenging, but it keeps it interesting, too. I would just kind of highlight the point that you made by, you know, I am a career federal employee. And, of course, as career federal employees, it's our responsibility to support and help implement the policies of the administration that's in charge. So, yes, the policies will vary from administration to administration, but I think having that experience, it helps make me a better advisor to whoever that administration is. I can kind of not only give them my technical assistance, but I can offer a historical perspective and maybe point out what could happen, what might happen, uh, depending on which approach that they might want to take. Yeah, so, for example, you could say, and I'm making this up and not implying that you would have said this, but... Well, you know, if you let them have their office space, your negotiations will go faster and then you'll get closer and you'll get past the negotiation, get to the labor agreement. And so maybe give them the office, that type of thing you might be able to say. I don't know that I'd get into that kind of specifics. Certainly uh, when I'm advising agencies on stuff like that, we might talk about collective bargaining strategies. And obviously you just highlighted one key component of collective bargaining is horse trading, if you will. You make agreements to kind of achieve your objectives. But certainly when there is a big change in policy direction, then we'll look at the best way to approach that and advise not only the administration, but advise agencies on the most prudent course of action. 
And without being specific, has it ever happened in your career that an administration or an OPM director or someone at OMB will say, you know, Tim, you're right. We're only going to do this and maybe not all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm here as an advisor. I don't make the policy. So, uh, you know, I've spent my career uh, not only at OPM, but at the Department of Defense. And I did a stint over at the Patent and Trademark Office. But certainly the labor relations folks know that we advise management and the management makes the decision. And they might accept part of our recommendations or all of our recommendations, but that just goes with the job. So you would then maybe characterize yourself as an honest broker? Yes, I would exactly uh, describe myself that way. We're speaking with Tim Curry. He's Deputy Associate Director for Accountability and Workforce Relations at the Office of Personnel Management and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. And let's get to that. Again, the administrations don't spell out exactly what people have done to get the Rank Award. So how'd you get the Rank Award? Well, there's probably several areas where they focused in their recommendation for the rank award. It really kind of begins primarily when COVID hit. And basically, we are looking at a government-wide issue that we needed to act quickly to protect the health and safety of the workforce. So it started with like uh, the decisions to send employees to work from home. And we needed to do that quickly, but we also recognized that there are over 1,800 bargaining units across the executive branch, covering over 1.2 million bargaining employees. So we knew we were going to have collective bargaining issues, but we also recognized that we needed to take a whole of government approach to deal with those collective bargaining issues. So what I did uh, with the teams that I lead, we start regularly engaging with the agencies, giving them not only our recommendations on not technical matters, but strategies. And we tried to do that together. Plus, I have a relationship with the national unions, and separately, I was engaging with them to keep them informed on where the administration was going and the approaches we were going to take. So we were trying to do that in a way to balance health and safety of the workforce, but also honoring collective bargaining obligations while not impacting agency missions in any adverse way. And of course, we're still dealing with the long, long tail of that whole situation and the changes that it engendered in the way people work. But early on in the pandemic, and you were at OPM then, correct? Correct. It must have been a lot of midnight oil figuring all of this out, how to keep the government going in a sense. Yeah, and it it was truly a team effort uh, with a lot of folks here at OPM and certainly with our partners and agencies. Everybody had a role to play. You know, I, I approached it from the federal workforce perspective in advising the administration, advising the OPM director, advising OMB, that we needed to do in a meaningful way that, again, in honor of our workforce to keep them healthy and safe, that honoring statutory collective bargaining rights, but also making sure that agencies were still able to accomplish their mission. So there was a lot of time and effort that was spent by a lot of people, including me and my team. And moving to the accountability side of it, employee accountability, which we mentioned early on, aside from labor relations, there's a lot of mythology surrounding federal employee accountability. You know, the myths you can never fire one or it takes 10 years to fire someone or they just get moved somewhere. That can happen. What's your view of where accountability is in reality? 
I think that the process that's in place is a straightforward process that we need to make sure that our supervisors are well-trained to understand what they can and cannot do. We need to make sure that we support them when they need to address a situation on their staffs or in, you know, in their workplaces, that whether it's a conduct issue or a poor performance issue. So it's really supporting managers, uh, making sure that the appropriate level of training is involved and so forth. It's not impossible to hold a federal employee accountable. I do believe that the vast majority of federal employees are good employees. They come in and they do their job and they do it well. All right. And what's next for you? You've been in the government a long time. You are senior executive. What would you like to accomplish before you call it a day and cash in on the TSP? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Uh, you know, still have a lot of things I'm doing here at OPM right now. We're working on a number of things. Obviously, with each administration, we have different policies that we're pursuing. You know, one of the things that was noted, like in the nomination, was my work on helping reset labor management relations. That dealt with Executive Order 14003, which rescinded policies from the last administration. And plus the work on worker empowerment. And we're still doing that. We've made a lot of progress. I think we're heading in a positive direction, but certainly there's always more work to do in a government this big. Tim Curry is Deputy Associate Director for Accountability and Workforce Relations at the Office of Personnel Management and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award this year. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, for these national security agencies, unique approaches to zero-trust cybersecurity. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is figuring out how to apply zero-trust cybersecurity on some 1,300 systems and applications. The scale of this effort requires an innovative approach to meeting the goals of the NGA itself, of the intelligence community, and of the Defense Department. During a recent panel, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with Monica Montgomery the NGA's Deputy Chief Information Officer and Deputy Director of its Cybersecurity Office, and with Donald Coulter, the Cybersecurity Science Advisor for the Science and Technology Directorate at Homeland Security. You hear Monica Montgomery first. What we've done that I think is unique within the IC and uh, the DOD is we are working towards our enterprise architecture, and we have created a solution epic to input into our uh, enterprise architecture. We have uh, seven MVPs that are across those uh, functional MVPs across the seven different pillars, but that has broken down into 91 different zero trust activities and um, 170 enterprise requirements. And so as we, as systems come through that, you know, business management system and they're producing those RFCs, each one of those is getting bounced across our solution epic. And so we don't have to go to all the programs. The programs are coming to us. 
And so that's given us a really a, a great opportunity to look at how we can take funding that we've received from OMB, from DNI, from DOD, um, and appropriately section that off and fund those. You know, we're obviously we're focused on enterprise security services first and foremost, but that's not the totality of our enterprise. And so we have to find ways to get to those smaller programs that are needing that funding, who can't afford to do it themselves. And so doing that through our, our enterprise architecture and our solution epic, I think, is, a, is how we've uh, unique to what we've, we've found. Anytime we can talk enterprise architecture, I do get excited, though there is a whole session of that, so don't get too excited, people. I can tell everyone is very excited about EA. But uh, I have one quick follow-up. You mentioned seven MVPs across the pillars. Are each of those minimal viable products a pilot, a, a test? A, like, how would you describe what those are? What we've tried to do is uh, we've taken the IC basic and DOD target activities and a, kind of done a crosswalk across, you know, through those seven pillars and identified which of our systems, not all of them, again, are enterprise security systems, but which of our systems can we use as kind of that MVP for that pillar, and then doing kind of rallying around that system and getting folks there. Don from uh, s and Donald, uh, tell us something we don't know. Thank you again. Interesting. So I approached this, uh, some of the work that we do, uh, since I'm not in a CIO or a CISO office, is that we look at longer term or harder time frame problems, and we look at them in a way that says, how can we make a broader impact across uh, a larger uh, segment of organization? And not to talk about DHS's mission so much, but part of our mission is to secure not only ourselves internally, but to secure the federal cyberspace and critical infrastructures and work with our partners to do that across state, local, tribal, and territorial partners. So our research and an investigation into how do we increase cyber resiliency uh, incorporates perspectives of how to scale and focuses on how to scale across organizations. So even as we're looking at the proliferation of a variety of different technologies that continue to emerge and the threats associated with those technologies, we're also incorporating a specific focus on how do we, at a, at a high Higher level scale across organizational boundaries with uh, privacy and confidentiality concerns that we don't want to um, lose the protection of the confidentiality and integrity in the, in the, uh, on one hand or for our sensitive data and systems, but also the integrity, availability, and safety, safety from um, our, our uh, operational technology systems. As, so one of the things that we're doing uh, and embarking on soon here as we lay out the federal cyber strategy for R&D, and as we start implementing some of the programs aligned to that, we're going to be looking at how do we improve zero trust capabilities and fundamental technologies that are beyond what the the standard uh, commercial implementations are providing in the near term. That includes looking at how to expand contextual awareness in our and, and expand the data that's associated with all of in the metadata associated with all the systems and resources that we have and be able to communicate those across systems and system boundaries and organizational boundaries and that also includes looking at a need to focus on standards actually I had a recent conversation we were talking about we we're focused on like technology and a system engineering and development life cycle and how we're developing that but 
some of the risk happens when you think of from a supply chain perspective, a lot of that risk happens right there when people are creating standards. So we have to be at the table and looking at how are these standards coming together and how are we influencing them to make sure that we're approaching them and inserting um, our interest to make sure that we have the visibility and understanding to um, retain the resilience and understanding of what's going in these systems and help uh, the developers and the uh, consumers uh, understand what they're buying and what they're deploying. So part of that strategy includes the biggest buzzword of the day, AI. So we are looking at uh, AI and how we can use that to help us analyze some of the inherent uh, fragilities that are in some of these systems and how can we help us uh, identify mitigations and, and inform people. But some of that is also just looking at how do humans interact with each other and other systems to learn and take information from AI-based uh, cybersecurity recommendation systems and how do we speed up the response to some threats and how do we design, uh, that's an operational time space, but again, we look at that, how do we push that back and integrate AI into the design and development of these systems as well. So this is where our focus is both in traditional information uh, communication technologies but also across operational technologies as well. Don, I want to go back to what you said, improve federal cyber strategy for R&D, improve ZTA beyond kind of standard commercial implementation. Do you have an example yet what that may look like? Help us define that a little bit, even at the 100,000-foot level, beyond the standard commercialization is common implementation. Yeah, so commonly what we're doing is we're able to kind of, there's no one technology that allows us to, you could just buy it and deploy it and you've got zero trust, right? With, even within DHS, we have multiple organizations and components that are independently going off and trying to solve their own security problems and zero trust problems. So one of the things we're really focused on is how can we assess the, the integrity of these zero trust implementations independent of any specific commercial vendor's technology, and how do we do it at a kind of at a technology level, but how do we at a high level, but also how do we come up with standards that allow us to assess the integrity of like our trust algorithms inside of the PDPs and the policy decision points and the policy engines? How do we come up with a standard me uh, measure uh, for indicating the security there? So that's just one of the areas that we're looking into. Workforce, how are you keeping the people, your good people, so they don't get away? Right. We have a thriving rotation program where we uh, encourage and enable people from across DHS to come and work with our shop for six months to a year and doing uh, cybersecurity R&D programs. And this allows us, we take people either that have cybersecurity backgrounds, we also take people that don't. And this gives them exposure, but it also proliferates uh, knowledge and awareness. So they can come learn more about cybersecurity and then go back to their jobs. Even if they're not cybersecurity folks in their jobs, they now know, like, what issues they should be concerned about and who they can go to uh, to find out more information or to help them solve hard problems. So that's just one of the ways we also uh, work on workforces, not only bringing people in and keeping them there and doing cyber stuff, but also people expanding the knowledge of the general workforce population. We also have uh, extensive use of the Intergovernmental Personnel Act as well. So we bring in visiting professors and other uh, state uh, and government officials as well to help us with our problems, go back to their organizations, go back to their schools, and continue to teach and, and generate the next uh, uh, generation of, of leaders in this, in this country. Yeah, so the uh, rotation stuff is super important. Uh, DHSIA's uh, CISO is a former NGA employee, right? So, <laughs> like, we, we definitely have that going for us. The one piece that I'd like to address that I think NGA is doing a little bit differently is that we are trying to make cyber everybody's job. 
it is no longer the 137 people who are considered cybersecurity. It's not their job. It is the totality of the agency. Wherever you sit, your job is cyber because of things like phishing and because of the, I think you had mentioned earlier, right, who you are and you might not realize the privileged accesses that you have. Everybody's job is cyber. Monica Montgomery, Deputy Chief Information Security Officer and Deputy Director of the Cybersecurity Office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. You also heard Donald Coulter, the Cybersecurity Science Advisor for the Science and Technology Directorate at Homeland Security. They were speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Veterans Affairs Department is recruiting private sector techies to consider a career in government. VA's IT shop has been on a hiring spree and coming up with ways to get employees to stick around longer. It's offering flexible work schedules and paying new hires more than they could make at most other agencies. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. And let's begin with the track record here. How well is their hiring going and what are they trying to accomplish this year, Jory? The hiring is going pretty well at VA's Office of Information and Technology. In 2023, they made about 1,000 new hires. And more importantly, they're getting these people to stick around for years here. They were able to reduce their overall attrition by nearly 10% last year compared to the previous year. And they are trying to get people to uh, recognize that their first job at VAOIT is probably not going to be their last one. So they've stood up a coaching and mentoring program to help these new hires with their career development, give them opportunities and visibility to look into what their second job and beyond uh, might look like at VA or you know maybe even elsewhere in the federal government. And we heard recently from Nathan Tierney. He's the VA's Deputy Chief Information Officer and its Chief People Officer. He says VA OIT is very people-centric these days and that its people-centric strategy is paying off. But I think really it's a focus on, on people and having real conversations about why do you want to come work for us? Why do you want to stay with us? And then showing a commitment to, to taking your voices, your feedback, and then making adjustments to make it a better experience. People who love people. And Jory, why, I mean, the government is making this push on a lot of fronts to hire tech people. This is for digital services. I mean, what's the overall strategy here, do you think? It's IT, it's cybersecurity. Uh, Pretty soon it's going to be artificial intelligence. That's one new uh, push behind this overall tech push. Uh, The Biden administration recently did put out its pretty broad and sweeping AI executive order, and that's going to mean a lot of things for internal use of AI within the federal government. So VA and other agencies are looking for tech talent along those lines. Uh, And also, this is just realistically a good time to be courting these tech people because in the private sector, there have been some pretty big layoffs across companies like Twitter, Meta, Amazon, and Microsoft. That was a big theme of 2023. And so that's a good time where people either don't have a job or are considering alternatives. 
I guess if you got the axe from X, you're an XX, so to speak. And so maybe you'll go work for the VA. And VA is making lots of pitches to try to get people in because it's still a government agency. Yeah. And they're making the case that, you know, on the mission alone, it's a great place for uh, people to work, that they are serving the 18 million veterans in this country. So that's you know, something that they really trade on here as a value proposition, a value add to these people. And for what it's worth, BAOIT's current workforce is about 50% veterans themselves. And as far as this overall pitch to new hires, Tierney says that, of course, all federal employees can uh, have the thrift savings plan and that 5% maximum match that the federal government makes. And on a related note here, he says that the federal government, federal employees who work in IT also can, if they stick around long enough, get a federal pension, which is something that Tierney says is just increasingly rare. If you look at Fortune 500 companies, and I'd argue we're in the Fortune 100 in terms of size and complexity, there's not a lot of pension programs out there. In fact, there's only about 60 out of the Fortune 500 companies that have any kind of pension whatsoever. All right. And that's something that all federal employees get. But the VA is offering some unique incentives or unique to VA, correct? They very much are. The VA last summer, they implemented a special salary rate for its IT and cyber workforce. This is something that is unique to the VA and the federal government. Other agencies have lobbied for that SSR. They have not yet implemented it anywhere else besides the VA. And it adds up to quite a bit here. It's a 17% on average pay raise for eligible IT and cyber employees. And that's about $18,000 on average. So that's a good chunk of change. It narrows the gap between what government and the private sector can pay these tech workers. It doesn't completely uh, eliminate that gap, but it does narrow it in a big way. And the VA for what it's worth did run the numbers here and they estimated that it was about a 66% pay gap between what government and private sector could offer these tech people. And they're also offering something else, a four-day compressed work week for people. Uh, so if they put in, let's say, 10 hours a day versus eight, then they can pretty much take those Fridays off and have a better work-life balance. And Tierney says, ultimately, that's a win-win for both the employees and the VA. It helps us by helping you in your work-life balance so that you can be more productive, more efficient, have more time with your families, but also be able to contribute to the VA mission by delivering quality IT products and services that help veterans, their families, and caregivers. Yeah, and if you're an IT techie, you won't be called to a sudden weekend surgery or something like those on the medical staff, so there's something to say there. And by the way, how is VA ranking in terms of IT employee satisfaction? Is that particular number known? Yeah, so we actually have some good metrics here. Uh, VA's CIO, uh, Kurt Delbeni, has made it his mission to make the VA OIT the number one tech shop in the federal government. And by some estimates, he's gotten there. Uh, surveys from both the Office of Management and Budget and the General Services Administration has ranked VA OIT as the number one ranked agency in terms of that IT satisfaction and that IT function. And if you look a little bit more broadly beyond just the federal government, VA OIT uh, does pretty well on the American Customer Satisfaction Index, and it measures tech giants like Apple and similar type uh, tech giants. And so there it just falls just below Apple. But so it just goes to show that VA OIT is doing well, not just by government standards, but is doing well by more broad tech standards here. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom.
And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And this is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. Thank you.